Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bombas socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. The only thing better than grinding all night for your side hustle is your roommate picking you up with Mickey D's breakfast. The perfect pickup deal. There's a deal for every morning at McDonald's. Right now, taste breakfast perfection when you get a warm and savory sausage McMuffin with egg for just $2.50. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with combo meal. and there will be no popcorn welcome to episode 19 of the no popcorn film and music podcast it's no encore hybrid sessions once again of course you can support no encore on patreon if you wish at patreon.com slash no encore this as noted is our kind of a you know monthly or whenever we get the chance to do it dive into a film that has a musical connection or in this case two of them on today's show we will be discussing the assassination of jesse james by the carrot robert ford and there will be blood two films that have a lot in common but there can only be one winner in my heart we'll get there first up norma howard how the hell are you doing i'm good howdy are you going i was like <laughs> cowboy cowboy-esque theme is that what we're going for um i'm good I've I slightly pivoted from watching films at the moment. I've been watching a lot of uh, TV series. I watched all of Sunderland Till I Die in two days, maybe three. That's what happened. Um, <laughs> I watched Normal People. It's really good. You should check it out. I assume everyone, actually, I assume everyone in the world has watched Normal People at this stage. I have zero interest in ever watching Normal People. What about you, David Higgins? Um, hello. I, I have not watched Normal People. I, I might one day 
watches after all this is you know you know finished but i haven't haven't ran to it at the moment um i don't think i have as big an aversion as as you do dave to it it's extremely well shot it's really well acted it's looks absolutely gorgeous the soundtrack is like packed with Irish artists which is really really nice and it's doing really well I would say that like as much as it's one of those things where people are like oh you can watch anything you want um, it's definitely geared more towards college students mid 20s kind of thing like it's like I don't blame any like anyone older than that for not having seen it because it's definitely geared towards that. So when you've got like older people who are like, this is disgraceful. It's like, well, it's also like, it's not exactly meant for your generation to enjoy, but also I guess you can consume whatever art you want and enjoy anything you want. I won't get into a big Joe Duffy hole on this. I was about to say, that's uh, some some rampant ageism there from you, Norman. I'm shocked. I, I mean, like, obviously everyone can enjoy it in whatever way they'd like, but uh, but it is definitely like there's moments of it where it's where I felt like I was just like, maybe I'd appreciate this more if I was like of that age or going through that same thing at the same time. So it has that kind of feeling to it. I watched The Rise of Skywalker was the last film we watched. Um, so the third, that, the last in that trilogy for Star Wars, and it's utter piss. <laughs> <laughs> it's I fucking dreadful. It. it was so bad, and I just like I've I'm I've absolutely no problem with getting on board with Star Wars films and just being like I'm gonna just let myself be entertained and let the journey take me. And it was complete bollocks. Like the script is just like it's like they wrote loads of separate lines on cue cards and then randomly passed them around to cast members and went just say that whenever you feel like you should be saying something. There you go. That is, that's, that's my review of The Rise of Skywalker. Terrible. I don't know if I, I mentioned it. I, I watched it pretty recently as well. Um, the, with, with quite a hangover and it was borderline giving me anxiety that it was just chopping and changing. I didn't know what was going on. Like, I don't, I don't care too much for Star Wars anyway. I think I'm of the, the Malcolm Tucker, you know, explanation of it being about some space hairdresser. Um, but <laughs> yeah, a truly, truly awful end to a truly unnecessary trilogy of movies. Um, very happy that uh, my man and your man, Timothy Oliphant, is going to be in The Mandalorian, a show I will still never watch, but I will consume all the, me- <laughs> all the memes of him and Baby Yoda that are fit to fill the internet. I hope it happens, yeah. I hope he's somehow related to Baby Yoda because I don't think Oliphant gets memefied by himself. But we'll see. We'll, we'll, we'll try and do our best. So, Norma, that's Normal People, Sunderland Till I Die. Between the two of those shows, which did you enjoy more? Probably Normal People. Sunderland Till I Die stressed me out. No end. <laughs> I like, I couldn't, I just couldn't. I kept being like, there'll be the big turnaround where obviously they just win a match. And you're like, no, they just keep letting you down. I felt like I don't even have that much of an investment in football. And by the end of it, I was just like, you know what? Sell the thing. I don't know. Can you can you like disband a football club? Can you do that? Uh, it usually happens if there's gross financial mismanagement or some kind of scandal. So I wouldn't rule that out happening in the future. Uh, speaking of, I, uh, I guess, scandal and financial mismanagement, that kind of stuff. I believe you've been diving into succession lately. Yes. Is that correct? 
I have two episodes left to watch so of season one, so I'm going to watch it tonight. I was surprised there was a season two, just from the general, when I very started the season, because I was like, how long can they kind of like ride this out for? But obviously, it's like a lot of this season is building to a bigger thing. And it's fucking brilliant. It's so, so good. Absolutely hooked. Can't wait to finish the season just so I can like sit down and let it wash over me. Also, the theme tune... Um, while we connected to music is so good. Like just anyone go away and listen to the theme tune for Succession is really, really good. Apparently it was influenced by the Beastie Boys. Um, so that makes it even better. But um, yeah, thoroughly enjoying it. Highly recommend. Um, I'm not sure where you can watch it. <laughs> uh, I think it might be on the Sky Store potentially, but there are methods. Somewhere in on the internet. <laughs> yeah, so um, the theme tune is fucking incredible by Nicholas Patel, of course, who did If Beale Street Could Talk. There's also a completely pointless, but nonetheless fun, even though it doesn't work at all, version with Pusha T on it, which is worth checking out if you haven't done that yet. Uh, as for you... I haven't heard that. Does <laughs> he just rap on it? Yeah, he does. It's terrible. It's called puppets. <laughs> Does he just rap in it as if I expected him to do something? It's essentially else. like uh, he just basically lists out the themes of the show in a pushy tea parlance, which is about as fun as it sounds over the beat. Uh, Higgs, what have you been up to lately in terms of the old Cineflix? Um, I have been consuming anything I can that is German, essentially, for the past couple of weeks. So. Um, with the with the reality of not going away for a while, and you know, kind of, you know, having a little bit of wanderlust, but and that can't be, you know, satiated by anything. Uh, I've been turning to um, reading about Germany, mostly German football, in anticipation of the return of the Bundesliga there at the weekend. Um, but also, I I revisited a book um, I'd read before called Stasi Land, uh, and of funder wrote so it's basically just true story she went and uh, met lots of people who lived in the gdr and about their lives and off the back of that i was like well i guess i'll revisit the lives of others um which was phenomenal to revisit um still as powerful as it always was um like beautifully shot um the only downside to it is that off the back of that i then went to visit the movie The Tourist, which was uh, by Florian von... I'm probably... I'm missing one of his titles, von Donnerschmark. I know he's like a a German lord, essentially. Um, So it led me to The Tourist, which, my goodness, how is that a movie that was made by the person who made the lives of others? Um, It's kind of movie that, like, in theory, should be so much fun. It's just like, we don't get a lot of... um, I would call it the the out-of-sight movie where it's like you put two charismatic, good-looking people in a movie together in a bit of a caper, add some romance, bish-bash-bosh. It should be good. Um, maybe the, 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 the trouble with this one was starting with Johnny Depp, um, who is, you know, zombified in this movie. Um, <laughs> they they film in, in Venice and, like, you, you have those, like, those nice overhead shots of Venice, but then... The rest of it just looks like it was filmed on a B-movie studio backlot. Um, so truly, truly terrible. Um, I also watched Goodbye Lennon, which is charming, but doesn't really have the emotional whack. The thing that I have come to and, and I, I've stuck with is, um, I know you've been spending some time in uh, you know the dark, seedy undervalley of Seoul and Busan and uh, of uh, Daegu. 
I've I've gone to Berlin, modern day Berlin. I've been watching a show on Netflix called Dogs of Berlin. Um, my excuse for it is I'm trying to brush up on my German. Um, so I was like, oh, I need something to watch. Sorry, is this just? Is it actually just about dogs? No, if if if, <laughs> if this was a show about, I was like, where is this going? <laughs> in in Berlin, it would be lovely. Uh, I wish that's what, what this show was about. Um, so I've, I've watched Dark. I don't know if anyone's watched Dark, but Dark is a really good German show. This is a terrible German show. I just want to give you the, the brief premise of it is like it's a it's a gritty crime sprawling drama um, set in the Marzahn Hellersdorf borough. It's very, very East East Berlin, the furthest East you can get in Berlin. So like was you know, behind the wall, um, didn't have the same amount of uh, immigration. Some of the West does, doesn't have the as large a Turkish population. But there's a murder. Uh, a Turkish guy is murdered in this uh, borough. But he's not just, sorry, he's German, but of Turkish extraction. But he's not just any German of Turkish extraction. He's basically Mesut Ozil. Fuck off. <laughs> yeah. So <laughs> then a, 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 like a hard-nosed cop called Grimmer, like literally his surname is Grimmer. Uh, he gets on the case and he's like, he, he sees, he realizes who it is and he tries to like coordinate off. So instead of like doing his job, he's like, oh, well, well, Turkey are playing Germany tomorrow night. So he's the best player on the team. And if I keep this a secret, I can put a massive bet on Turkey winning this game. Um, so this is like all the first episode. It's so like, you know, capital E edgy terrible um <laughs> there's awful awful Turkish gangsters Croatian gangsters in it um there's a character in it another football player who's on the take who is essentially uh, Pierre Emmerich Aubameyang he's like from Gabon and as he has the exact same haircut <laughs> they they've somehow managed like it's it's got high production values to uh, to to a point um except for like you know when they're sh- shooting the game like in in the Olympic Stadium in Berlin, its borderline looks like um, Joe Hart's Head and Shoulders commercial. Um, <laughs> it's wildly, disgustingly violent. Um, there is so much violence against women done by women for no reason at all. Um, everyone is introduced with a crash zoom. I don't know why I'm still watching it, but I will continue to do so, basically telling myself that I'm doing it for my own education. Okay, I mean, like, I'll see your your dogs of Berlin here, and I'll, I'll I'll raise Gangs of London, mate, which I watched in an entire weekend. The uh, Sky original, which comes from the director of the Raid, Gareth Evans. It's Evans, right? I always mix up him and Gareth Edwards. I know everybody does, but I'm pretty sure it's Gareth Evans. And he's also got um, Silent Hill director Xavier Jones, and uh, the guy who was supposed to do the Crow remake, Corin Hardy. They're all involved. They split up the episodes together. They directed them based off an idea by uh, Gareth Evans. So if you've never heard of Gangs of London, it is a nine-episode series. They all dropped at the same time, Netflix-style, starring Colomini. Briefly, he gets his face shot off in the opening kind of scenes, which is known going in. He's the head of a crime family, which includes um, Catelyn Stark from Game of Thrones, Michelle Fairley, and also Joe Cole, not the footballer, but the actor who was in Peaky Blinders and an episode of Black Mirror, and also Green Room, uh, which we talked about on this show before. Of course, he played the drummer quite well. Uh, you wouldn't know it was him. 
But in this, he's got a weird kind of kind of posh London teeth accent going on all the time. And it's basically about him out for revenge, trying to find out who killed his father and why. Various different gangs of the title there milling around and, uh, you know... <clears throat> An undercover cop mate. So it's the departed as well in there as well. This show is reprehensible. It is disgustingly violent all the time. And like, it's, it's like, unlike the Raid movies, which I love, and I did recently rewatch the Raid too, and I think it is a masterpiece. Um, this is like really nasty violence, like very sadistic. Like, Joe Cole has introduced like, uh, torturing a guy, and the guy is hanging off the side of a building, uh, by a rope attached to his leg, and Joe Cole, like, pours fucking petrol all over the guy, lights him on fire, and he drops to the ground, burning and screaming for his life. Like, there's at least one torture scene per episode. There's at least one kind of like, you know, like a guy gets like bricked up in a fucking building and has cement poured over him while he's screaming. Uh, there's just all that kind of stuff happening. It's If I was 15, I think it's the best show ever. Uh, it's just like, you, you, you want to talk about capitally edgy, that's all this show is. And then it's mixed with like the cadence, the speech, the rhythms, the dialogue, the plot points of your average fucking EastEnders episode. I went in with some intrigue and I was like, this could be really good. And then by episode nine, I was just like, I want this show to be over. I never want to see this again. This was a mistake. I have wasted my entire weekend. And oh no, they've teased another one. Great. Yeah, it's it's rubbish. Like, so I won't watch Dogs of Berlin. None of you watch Gangs of London. It is appalling. Absolutely appalling. It's gross. Um, but yeah, sorry. Okay, so hang on. You're also, uh, I, I recently hopped on board the Letterboxd train. Uh, how would you describe Letterboxd? Anyone doesn't know what it is, Higgins? Um, it is a social media platform slash micro blogging site that is purely for film. So uh, I've been on it for a while. Uh, I'm noticing a lot of people are, are, are flocking to it now. I, I don't know if it's just uh, COVID-19 watching everyone's up in their, you know, their movies that they're in, taking in. I just use it as a way to remember what I've watched because otherwise I will forget. Um, it's also you can add a rating onto a movie. Um, it's it's quite a it's quite a handy tool. Lots of people actually do full reviews of everything they see on it. Some people might do a, a one or two liner. Um, but you've you've joined, been quite prolific on it so far. I'm averaging a movie a day. I actually watched three movies last night. Edge of Tomorrow, three and a what? half stars. I'm sorry, what else are you doing? Well, look, well, there's nothing else to do. <laughs> like, I mean, we can't go anywhere. I watched three films there on Sunday. I watched Edge of Tomorrow, three and a half stars. I gave that one. I watched Lockout, one star. I hated it. And I went back to Sunshine, which remains four stars. I thought I was going to give it the full five this time, but no. I do think it's I do think it's a wonderful film, though. Um, but as as Higgs alluded to earlier on, uh, I got really depressed there a few weeks ago, and I thought, you know what I'm going to do. I'm going to watch a bunch of bleak Asian cinema, specifically Korean this time. And I just found myself watching uh, A Bittersweet Life, The Chaser, The Yellow Sea, The Wailing, Mother... Uh, what else did I watch in here? Thirst, which was a Higgs recommend, which I was actually quite disappointed by. Um, yeah, I mean, like, I, I don't know. I, I had to kind of stop myself. I had to kind of pull myself away from it and be like, as much as I'm enjoying some of these films, I need to stop because they're all intensely grim. The one that I will pick out, though, for a big recommend, though, is The Wailing. I don't know if anyone here has seen that one. Um, it's about murders happen in this small kind of rural village and a cop 
tries to discover what's going on and is met with forces beyond his control and understanding. Uh, the Wailing did something that a lot of films have not done with me in a while. It legitimately scared me. I found it genuinely hard to sleep that night. So it's a recommend for sure. It's long. It's got like those kind of weird tonal pacing issues that tend to crop up in a lot of these films. I'm very wary about making any kind of like blanket statement about Korean cinema, but like there are tropes that pop up a lot. And one of them is like bumbling authority figures, kind of cartoonish cops. And it's like, okay, cool. This is clearly the filmmaker's commentary and disdain for authority, I suppose. But it's weird to put them in these like super serious situations as well, because it just makes the tone really kind of off and offbeat. And I just wonder if that's like a cultural thing. I don't know enough about Korean cinema or Asian cinema to really kind of make that statement. But like, it's definitely within the DNA of what is in front of you. Uh, sometimes it can just be like, okay, this is really at odds with what I'm watching in the next scene, but it's still very, very compelling at the same time. And um, yeah, that's, I mean, it would be it would be foolish of me to go through everything I've been watching because it would take the entire episode, so I won't do that. But uh, yeah, I've settled into this wonderful, wonderful watching films as part of my daily ritual. Why, Norma, are you not? Are you, are you, are you abstaining? Um, I have taken a little break because honestly, I've become mildly addicted to the Legend of Zelda Breath of the Wild. (laughs) (laughs) I like, I I was just, I've been consuming actually quite a lot of things. And I think there's like a point where you kind of start letting things like wash over you. Like there was a point where I watched three episodes of The Last Dance. And then I woke up the next morning after having dreamt about it all night long. And I couldn't remember like major things that had happened. So I was like, my brain is no longer taking in um, TV and filmic content and processing it correctly. So I took a wee break and pivoted to video games. So there you go, Dave. That's what I've been doing. Are you happy? No, I've been playing video games too to beat the band, yeah. But uh, okay, I guess before we go, I can't let this section move on without asking Dave Higgins for his review of Joshua Trank's Tom Hardy starring Capone, previously titled Fonzo which is now out for video on demand. Hasn't been getting great write-ups, Dave. What's it like? Yeah, so uh, just just on the... You mentioned being on Letterboxd, one of the great things about Letterboxd is you can make a watch list. Um, so I have aspirations of watching really good movies on my Letterboxd where I've like made this list of uh, Kurosawa movies and David Lean movies and Claire Denis movies, but in reality I'm watching Extraction, Angel Has Fallen, Vin Diesel's Bloodshot, and of course... <laughs> Capone. Um, Capone's actually kind of an interesting movie uh, to, to to briefly talk about in the context of what we're going to be doing today, because uh, much like uh, Jesse James, it is a you know a, a last days look at a iconic um, iconic figure in American history who was also a criminal. Um, both he and Jesse James. You know, they, they've kind of been turned into these figures of aspiration. Um, Jesse James with his kind of Robin Hood myth, uh, Al Capone, heavily influential within uh, the world of hip hop and even movies like Scarface going forward. Um, and of course, um, Jesse James has a score by Nick Cave and Warren Ellis. Uh, Capone has a score by LP. Um, that is where the comparisons end. Um, thankfully... <laughs> The Assassination of Jesse James by the character Robert Ford does not have multiple scenes where Jesse James shits himself. <laughs> um, 10, 15 minutes into this movie and Al Capone has shit himself twice. This, this is like incredibly anti-cinema and like in a way I, I appreciate
appreciate the 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 idea of it. It's like you know, completely destroying the myths of the man. Like you know, at the end of it, we're all just a bag of bones shitting ourselves. I guess is, is what what Josh Frank wants to say. Um, it this movie is like a hundred minute version with more poop of the last 15 minutes of the Irishman, but it feels twice as long as the Irishman actually is. Um, Hardy is at his worst. Like I, I have time for Hardy. I think he's, he's good when he's not using the crutch of either, um, mumbling or, or he, he adopts a tick into a lot of his performances that just seems to be the thing that he like leans on the whole time. You know, give me charming Tom Hardy in Inception every day of the week or even in Dunkirk. Um, he's caked with awful makeup in this. Um, literally just grumbles, grimaces the whole way through. I'm, I'm, I like, I don't know why there is a narrative around Josh Trank as if he's like some sort of, you know, savant off the back of Chronicle. Like, Josh Trank is. 36 and people are still talking about him like he's a hot upcoming director to put it into context Paul Thomas Anderson was just finishing There Will Be Blood when he was 36 he'd already made Magnolia <laughs> Boogie Nights and we're, we're now is it I don't know if it's just um I'm I'm reading the wrong people but I, I don't get it at all uh, this movie is one of the worst things I've maybe ever seen just as you mentioned Scarface I saw Online, there's been like major kickoff about the remake. So it's going to be a Coen Brothers written Luca. I can ne- never sure if I'm pronouncing his second name right. Gauda. Anyone want to help me out? Guadagnino. Thank you very much. Said with such um, beauty there. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So loads of people online were just like, I can't believe they're going to remake a classic. And everyone was just like, everyone else on the other side of it going, well, it's already actually a remake of an original <laughs> classic. So everyone just needs to relax and let people make movies. It's also fucking Scarface, which is not a good film. I'm sorry, but like, nah, not, not having it. Um, okay. What we will have instead though is the films that we've come here to discuss today. So it's The Assassination of Jesse James by the character Robert Ford. It's There Will Be Blood, and they splice together, sound a bit like this. His children didn't know how their father made his living, or why they so often moved. They didn't even know their father's name. He regretted neither his robberies, nor the 17 murders that he laid claim to. And on September 5th, 1881, Jesse James was 34 years old. Ladies and gentlemen, I've traveled over half our state to be here tonight. I couldn't get away sooner because my new well was coming in at Coyote Hills and I had to see about it. Ladies and gentlemen, if I say I'm an oil man, you will agree. I'm a family man. Okay, so the year is 2007, and I, it, 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 I'm not living in Dublin, so it's that thing of, if I want to go see a good film, quote-unquote good film, I generally have to get the bus to Dublin and go to a decent picture house. In this case, Cineworld. It's not the best option of all time, but that's where I went to see The Assassination of Jesse James by the Carrot Robert Ford, a film I was very much intrigued by and excited for. And it was that kind of moment of like it coming up at the end of the uh, the end of the film, like the title card coming up on the screen, and me just kind of sitting there absolutely wrapped and just being like, 
I've just seen something incredibly special. And it's it's going to be very, very difficult. It's going to be nigh on impossible for me to do this episode and not just gush over this film. So fair warning. But I will say that genuinely, um, and obviously we rewatched it recently for, for this show, I in the thirteen years since the release of this film, I I have not seen a, a better film. I just haven't. I think it's I think it's an absolutely perfect film. I it's my probably it's got to be my favorite film. I would say I think it's just wonderful. I find new stuff in it every single time. For anyone who hasn't seen this film, as the title would suggest, it is about the last days of Jesse James, the legendary outlaw, and essentially his demise. So you're told off the bat what's going to happen. They're not hiding around. There's no sense of suspense in that regard. But the film somehow manages to build it incredibly well in terms of tension from the off, really, because as kind of alluded to, while not as, I guess, disgusting as Capone sends, um, this is about deglamorizing a, a legend. And so much of this film is about like the birth of celebrity and also celebrity stalkers and the obsession that kind of comes out of that and the the mythos that kind of follows people around and some of it is true and some of it isn't. A lot of it is exaggerated. A key character in this film for me is actually the character that Sam Shepard plays. He plays Jesse's older brother, who Frank James, who disappears after the first act because he's effectively tired of his brother's shit and doesn't want to be there anymore and doesn't really ascribe to the cult that has built around him. Brad Pitt, I find it really kind of interesting that he made this film around the time that he was like the biggest, most marketable movie star in the world. He had Troy, which not a great film, but it was a big tentpole movie. He had Mr. and Mrs. Smith, which of course launched his marriage and, you know, like that whole Brangelina bullshit for a while. So he could basically make whatever he wanted. But Brad Pitt, despite being probably the most handsome person in the entire history of cinema for me, uh, is someone who very, very clearly adores films and wants to be in good films, wants to work with good filmmakers. So he hooks up here with Andrew Dominic. They make this very esoteric art house Western, uh, which is not a crowd pleaser. There are no shootouts, really. There's like one or two. And if there, if you could even call them that, and they're messy. This is not a choreographed movie. This is not an action blockbuster. It's really, really for the art house crowd, but I think it's an incredible drama. I think it's an incredible production and I never get tired of it. I, I, I think that there's an awful lot going on here. As for There Will Be Blood, I'll pass over now to Dave Higgins, who is sporting a Daniel Plainview-esque moustache, who can tell us a bit more about that one. Yeah, so um, There Will Be Blood is the fifth film from Paul Thomas Anderson. Um, a bit of a departure for him. Uh, first time, well, he'd made a period movie with, with Boogie Nice, but he's he his first couple of movies were like very, very Scorsese influenced, particularly Boogie Nights, and very, very, very heavy on Robert Altman. Um, with There Will Be Blood, he was kind of going even further back in time into directors that he um, kind of grew up idolizing and was drawing very heavily on John Huston. Um, to the point that I think Daniel Flamebu's accent is influenced by it a little bit. Houston had like a very kind of strong mid-Atlantic accent. Um, it's also drawn on some Kubrick. Um, but he is adapting a book loosely uh, called Oil by Upton Sinclair, which is about the, the oil boom in California. Uh, Anderson's a California uh, boy himself. Um and it's about the oil boom in kind of at the turn of the century. Yeah, um, did this like like your experience with um with Jesse James? I remember going to see this. I think I was actually a couple of minutes late for the start of it, um, because I went to see it in a very very far away theater when I used to live in Canada, and I don't know why we we went uh, there. But 
yeah, just like when 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 it hit black at the end, I was like, oh, I didn't know you could end a movie like that. Um, I hadn't seen a performance like Plain View. I hadn't seen something that big, that kind of um, bold. Um, and also just like, I don't think I'd spent so much time with a character who was so inherently nihilistic and misanthropic, but also like so, so, so captivating. Um, I return to this movie quite a lot now. Um, like you say, I get new things about it every time. Um, you know, the, the first time it's kind of like a, a wash over your movie because you're just all consumed by uh, Daniel Day-Lewis and to an extent um, Paul Dano. But the more I go back to it, even if I leave it a few years and like different things are happening, it's a great movie to recontextualize. Um, I suppose we'll get into a little bit of that later. But like even this time, I think more and more and more things pop up for uh, me in it. So always happy to talk about it. Yeah, so I picked both of these as well. <laughs> so this is also this monster of an episode is my fault. Um, there, there Will Be Blood is it's probably up there with one of my favourite films of all time. Um, in 2007, I was 13, so I did not see either of these films upon release. <laughs> Um, not for a couple of years anyway, but uh, probably one of my favourite cinema experiences ever was seeing There Will Be Blood maybe about two years ago in the lighthouse in screen one in 35mm and it was, oh, it was divine. I just like, it was just the best way to watch it. The sound was incredible. And uh, similarly to Higgs, I have the kind of thing where each time I go back, I can like... The first watch of it does feel a bit like an assault because there's like the intensity of the performances and you're taking in a lot of information and it is like it's the entire film is cranked up really high. Even the sound mix is like up really high and it just kind of like pelts at you. Um, and I will rewatch it and rewatch it and rewatch it tirelessly um, and find new things in it that I enjoy or new parts of relationships that I quite like. Similarly with uh, Jesse James, like upon rewatching it, um, I definitely enjoy the performances more. I've always found Casey Affleck in it like absolutely amazing, but he just was so slimy and so annoying that I just couldn't stand looking at Casey Affleck after seeing this film for about three years. I was just like, not having it. I can't stand this man. And there's something about... Uh, the way they make him look in the film, they make him look really pale and quite gross. Actually, similarly with Paul Dano's character, they like they put a tinge on the two of those lads to just make them that a little bit more greasy um, than everyone else. Both like exceptionally beautiful films, um, brilliantly acted and well directed. So I'm intrigued to see who is going to come out on top at the end of this episode. <laughs> uh, well, yeah, we that's will. That's where we're heading. <laughs> <laughs> well, gonna win. we're going to um we're going to look at the music of course later in the show as a kind of a compare and contrast as well because you know music tie-in uh <laughs> but yeah I, okay so like i mean i'm just gonna have to just derail things now for a second and just state that like i just don't get there will be blood i feel like my dad when i showed my dad jesse james and i was so excited to show my dad jesse james because he loves westerns and it was at the time i showed him glengarrigan ross and at the end of glengarrigan ross much like at the end of this movie I was like, so what do you think? And he was like, 
nah, not really for me. And I'm just like, what? And then he's like, was I supposed to like any of those characters? And I'm like, no, but it, it it's just so wonderfully put together in the writing. No, dad, no. <laughs> like, I was just like, fuck, I can't believe it. I've just shown my dad my favorite film and he's like, nah, mate, not for me. But, but there will be blood. I mean, Jesus Christ. I went back to it for the first time in a very long time and I was like, okay. And the, the opening stretch is is an absolute masterclass. It's stunning. And I'm like, you know what? Maybe I've just been wrong all these years. Maybe there's something unbelievable here. And then by the end of it, I was like, yeah, it's fine, I suppose. Uh, yeah, I like, I really, really don't know like what kind of apparent masterpiece I'm, 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 I'm missing here. Yeah, I think like, it's like, again, similarly to what Higgs said, it's just the characters are so compelling and it is just looking at this one particular man and essentially just like, the human condition and just like how we're built and trying to fight against that nature or do you just some come to it and hope that you can find like little embers of joy along the way it's looks absolutely beautiful it's just astoundingly well acted and it was like even when I I think I probably first saw saw it when I was maybe 16 or 17 and I wouldn't have had like a major um understanding of cinema and script writing and sort of nuance and technique at that point. But even at that age, I was like, I couldn't believe that someone had written that script and that the like it was acted that way. It was just like astounding because the what's happening in this words that are being said are so huge and enormous. Um, and yet it just felt so real and so much like that man just existed and led this life and just had this like utterly miserable existence. And I just find it so fascinating. Also, there are elements of it where like, I, I said this actually upon rewatching it to someone about how um, one of my favourite lines from it ever, because people are always like, oh, is it the milkshake line or is it the like, I've abandoned my child line? I was like, no, it's the bit where he's drinking with his, um, with Henry. And he's like, I hate most people. I would just be like, oh, I know how you feel, man. <laughs> they do an incredible thing of just building this essentially like bad and nasty, horrible, hate-filled man, but also giving him moments where you're just like, I can't not get behind him and what he is trying to do. And I do feel sympathetic for him. He was just trying his best. I hate most people. There are times when I... I look at people and I see nothing worth liking. I want to earn enough money I can get away from everyone. I see the worst in people, Henry. I don't need to look past seeing them to get all I need. built up my hatreds over the years, little by little, with these um, people. Yeah, no, I, I also <laughs> that is one of my, my favourite lines. The line that comes before it is that I have a competition in me, which I think is incredible. Um, that um, it's not even... It's not even the the wealth at the end of it. It's just like he wants to be people. He could he could check out. He could sell. He could sell his plots of land to Union Oil the whole time. But he just wants to beat them. He he won't take a humiliation lightly, and he will come for you. And 
as he said, will come into your house at night and cut your throat. Um, yeah, it's, where does one even begin with it? Um, yeah, I just, I just find this, uh, astounding every time. Um, I think the fact that I find new things in it and like this time around, um, I was like looking at plain view through like the prism of, you know, he's, he's up there and he's talking about oil, but he's basically like, a politician in this movie. Um, and what I found really interesting about it is like, this movie is about, you know, capitalism with a capital C, but what's so clever about the way Plainview is written and the way that he manipulates people is that he's coming into a town and he wants to, you know, take their oil. And he's not saying, we're all going to be filthy rich out of this. He's, he's unabashedly saying, I'm taking your oil. But the way he sells it on it, and in uh, maybe we'll, we'll listen to this clip um, in a minute, the tool that he uses to take people's oil is he's essentially Bernie Sanders, which is incredible. He gives a speech where he's talking about going into a town and he, he wants to talk about public health. He wants to talk about irrigation. He wants to talk about bread. He wants to talk about um, educating the masses. He's so connivingly awful in a way but you know an exploitive um he's just he's just such a fascinating character like he's one of the great villains of all time but he's also as you say norman he is kind of it is he you can kind of root for him and i think a lot of that is born out of the fact that um eli sunday is such a weasel and you you take such joy uh between the two of them sparring like one of the things that I, I, the more I watch it that I love about this film, and I think it kind of applies to a lot of PTA movies, is I think there's a perception that he's a very serious filmmaker and he's a very serious man. Um, you know, he makes big, important, robust dramas, but he also makes, um, he makes movies that are very, very funny. He frequently casts, you know, comedians from the, the LA comedy scene. Like I think Paul F. Tompkins pops up in a scene here and like, Obviously, he's married to Maya Rudolph, who pops up in Inherent Vice. Um, like, Boogie Nights is a very funny movie. I think this movie is hilarious. I think that you can very much take it very seriously, but there is a comedy of manners in this. Um, and I love a line from Daniel Day-Lewis when he was, uh, when he was talking about it. Um, and he's like, what kind of movie are you making? And he's like, there's no women, there's no romance, no nothing. Just fucking filthy guys digging holes in the ground <laughs> and for me like that that's what it <laughs> not is wrong he's not wrong it this is just um you know it, it is epic in scope but it is also incredible on a macro and a micro level as well all right let's take a listen to that speech ladies and gentlemen ladies and gentlemen thank you so much for visiting with us this evening well, i've traveled across half our state to be here and to see about this land I dare say some of you might have heard some of the more extravagant rumors about what my plans are. I just thought you'd like to hear it from me. This is the face. It's no great mystery. I'm an oil man. Ladies and gentlemen, I have numerous concerns spread across this state. I have many wells flowing at many thousand barrels per day. I like to think of myself as an oil man. 
has no oil man I hope that you'll forgive just good old fashioned plain speaking yeah and like I, like, like I want to state like this isn't contrarian Dave here this is like I wanted to really enjoy this film more than I did previously I think at the time I was certainly put off by just the kind of the deluge of hype and just the kind of it's a foregone conclusion that Daniel Day-Lewis is going to win the Oscar and you know like it's oh it's this unbelievable terror and performance likes which you've never seen and there also was kind of a residual kind of thing in me as well where like I don't think Gangs of New York is a great film or anything, but I really enjoy his performance in that movie. And I remember defending it quite a lot at the time. I remember people kind of saying like, oh, he's absolutely ridiculous in this movie. He's such a horrible pantomime villain. He's basically spinning his fucking mustache. And yeah, he is doing all those things, but I thought it was amazing. And then when There Would Be Blood came along, I kind of felt like he got the plaudits for what I thought he should have got the plaudits for with Gangs of New York. And maybe I was just a bit kind of sullen about it for some reason. You know, a bit of a low-key Daniel Plainview myself, perhaps, stomping around Drada um, <laughs> with much significantly less impressive facial hair. But uh, yeah, I don't know. I, I just, by the end of this movie, I was like, it's clearly a great undertaking and there's incredible elements to it, but it just doesn't sing to me the way it does to so many other people. It's interesting you, you mentioned uh, Paul, Paul Dano, Paul Dano, who of course, you know, the running joke that has been put to him himself is that he's unlikely to appear in a film unless he gets the shit kicked out of him routinely in it. Um, I didn't know that he was actually only supposed to be the, the first brother, the twin brother at the start. And then, actually had to step in at the last minute and be in the movie? Yeah, so I found that guy's names. There was an original actor set to play Eli called Kel O'Neill. Paul Danner was just going to play Paul. So he filmed his scene and I think they all met on the set of There Will Be Blood about two weeks before production began because PTA wanted them to all just like hang out and get into the vibe of being out in the space. And um, the rumours were that he... That actor, Kel O'Neill, who was meant to play Eli, left the production slash got fired because he was so intimidated by Daniel Day-Lewis. But I did find an interview from him saying that that was not the case, that he just found he didn't gel well with Paul Thomas Anderson and he could kind of sense that it was not working that well. So about at the end of those two weeks, his name was taken off the shooting schedule and then they had a meeting with him. And then just Paul Dano had four days to step into Eli Sunday. I like that is considering Daniel Day-Lewis had three years to prep. Three years they'd been discussing playing Daniel Plainview and he gets four days. Go on, Paul Dano. Fair play. That is genuinely incredible. It's 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 something that PTA and uh, Daniel Day-Lewis have like refuted that they essentially chased Kel O'Neill out of town and apparently a career in acting because he doesn't seem to be, doesn't seem to have much of a trail post that. Um, there was some talk around the time, so you mentioned gangs that, um, you know, because Bill the Butcher is a, the natural antagonist of uh, DiCaprio's character and that, that like even in between takes, obviously uh, Day-Lewis's uh, commitment to the method is is famous and it was said that like between takes that he'd just be like stink eyeing Leonardo DiCaprio and just like being super cold to him the whole time. So like um that might have been a a struggle for Kel. But um Dan Day Lewis says that, you know you know, when he makes these movies that it's a partnership, um he totally denies it. Um I'd say there might be a kernel of truth in it though. Like he clearly is a very, very intense person and, you know, there was only, there wasn't two Daniels on that set. There was only Daniel playing for you, essentially. Well, I want to ask, I want to ask you both, actually. I mean, like, ultimately, this might be a really fucking open and shut 
question, but I'm going to ask it anyway. Is Day-Lewis as good as... As good as advertised, not just in this movie, but in general as an actor, like is he is he genuinely on that kind of god tier? And also, if the answer is yes or somewhere close to it, does the methodology matter? I think he yes. <laughs> in in answer to the first one, I think you know he he's genuinely incredible, and both the fact that he doesn't work that often, um, and the fact that there is the myth like. You know, we're going to talk about another uh, person in filmmaking who has a kind of a myth about him later on. But the fact that like a, a Daniel Day-Lewis performance is so rare, it's like he's decided to come down from the mountain. And he's decreed that this is an important film that Daniel Day-Lewis will star in and is deserving of your attention. He's never bad. He's always really, really good. Clearly, the fact that he isn't just making any old shite, although I haven't seen nine, but apparently that might be the the, the one smoking gun against him. Um, I think that combined with it is it's like a lot of industry talk where it's like, you know, oh, he you know, he was carried around set. Like I remember when I was in, in school, like and we did my left foot and it was just like my teacher was just raving about the fact that, you know, Dan D. Lewis was carried around set while he was Christy Brown. I was like, well, is that not just being like you know, appreciate the craft, but like, is he being a little bit dickish? Like lots of people can come in and give a great performance just like on, you know, the click of a finger. I think he's wonderful, but I think that his myth is possibly wanting a little bit. I'm not entirely sure on these numbers, but he's like, he's only starred in, I think maybe like 13 or 14 films, like, like kind of um, big feature length films. So, like, his nominated for best actor per film he's made ratio is pretty high. <laughs> yeah, I think, like, it's hard because if if he was churning out a lot of films, would the performance in the, this film be as good as it is? Or is it because he spent, like, say, four to five years solely on this project and just gave it absolutely everything he had and then got reaped the rewards, like... Who knows? I, I'm i going to go ahead and say he's just an unbelievably good actor who can take his shot at just doing a handful of films and getting the most out of them that he can. I do think, obviously, though, that like his his commitment to it and, and in this movie, he said he, he spent two years preparing for it, um, hopefully not literally digging for oil in Wicklow. But he was, you know, you know, his commitment, it's there. It's there on the screen. There's little things like when you see him with a pickaxe like laying into a wall, that feels natural. That feels like something he's done before. He he never, no matter what kind of craft he's, he's taking up in a movie, he 100% sells it. And yeah, in, in that sense, like it's definitely worth it, but maybe a little bit overblown, of course. Let's check in with the opening sequence of Jesse James and get a kind of a flavour of that movie. He considered himself a southern loyalist and guerrilla in a civil war that never ended. He regretted neither his robberies nor the 17 murders that he laid claim to. He had seen another summer under in Kansas City, Missouri. And on September 5th, in the year 1881, he was 34 years old. So that's a slice there of the intro to The Assassination of Jesse James by the character Robert Ford, which has pretty much given you a sense of everything that the film is going to be. It's this just 
gorgeous to look at, like the composition with, you can hear the kind of the strains of the Nick Cave and Warren Ellis score. And you can hear the voiceover by a man by the name of Hugh Ross. I think a lot of people thought it was Ricky Jay who was doing the voiceover. Some people thought it was Alec Baldwin. It's a guy called Hugh Ross. And it's interesting because, I mean, like you hear it all the time. Never put voiceover in your film. It's a it's a lazy tool. It's a hack job thing to do. Uh, I think it, it suits perfectly in this film. I think, you know, whether it's just for expository dialogue or just scene setting, I think it actually works quite well. It's almost like a nice kind of break from some of the some of the murkiness and tension that can build up. And I just love it. I just love the like cause the interesting thing here is that like that kind of meta thing, and I said earlier on about Brad Pitt using his clay to get this made. At the same time, I mean, like it's it's clearly like a vanity project for Brad Pitt as well. I mean, he's playing the most fearsome, most legendary outlaw of all time. Uh, but at the same time, I do think that he manages to, I guess, uncheck his ego a bit at the same time. Like there are scenes in this film in which, you know, much like with Daniel Plainview, like these are not nice men. These are ugly kind of creatures at the same time. Uh, we've kind of, you know, we've, we're comparing and contrasting like these different depictions of very bad men. I guess one thing I want to know is like whether it's one, both or neither, is there good in any of these people or are they just straight up villains? Well, as I kind of touched on with Daniel Plainview, I do find like there's these kind of tender moments. I won't say like kind things, but there is a tenderness at times where you can see how he does just have this kind of like, he's just born with this like war inside him. And there's a moment where he's talking about HW and he's kind of explaining that uh, he needed to have someone with him to sort of share the load of being an oil man because it's just so difficult and so lonely and so sad sometimes even though he doesn't generally like enjoy the company of other people you can tell that he does genuinely love his son very very much um and there's also like there's an interesting part in it when um when he gets to the sunday ranch and um he finds out later on from HW, who's been playing with one of um, the young children, Mary, that her father hits her if she doesn't pray. And then there's an incredible scene when they open the new oil rig in the in the town of Little Boston. And he kind of like extremely passive aggressively sits Mary down at a table with her father just like literally a metre away um, and holds her and is like, do you like your new dress? And she's like, yeah, yep, yeah, I love my new dress. Then he's like, and there'll be no more hitting for you. Isn't that right? right? You're not going to, you're not going to get hit anymore. And then there's just a look shared between him and the father. And it is kind of an incredible thing. And even when HW does like tries to set their little cabin on fire next to the oil rig, he like will not hit him. And he does have a certain level where he does have like a code he believes in as well, even though he goes on to do other horrific, awful, terrible things. Um, and I think he does appear sympathetic. And I think that's where there's a lot of um, similarities between him and Jesse James, because again, they have like, they've committed all these atrocious crimes, but they do have a love for children. And it is their kind of joy. And it's a, a bit of a release. And maybe it's like the innocence of, children and they don't hold all these terrible things weighted on them because um because of their youth that they enjoy having them around um so i don't think they're like truly awful men is it if it comes down to like the battle of who's the baddest man 
Not necessarily. It's just more a case of like, do you find that empathy? Like, as my father couldn't find when watching this uh, these movies. Although I think he likes the wood blood. I should also note that like while we're doing this recording, obviously we're all in these remote situations. We're doing the best we can. There are children <laughs> playing and laughing outside in the street right now. So if they come on the mic, I can't do anything about it, lads. You know, uh, it's a nice comparison, I suppose. But yeah, I mean, just for me, there's a really like, beautiful bit in uh, the assassination of Jesse James where it's coming up to his assassination and there's like his daughter I think it's his daughter loses her shoe outside and it's just this really beautiful light moment in a really really dark awful heavy tense weighted situation that uh, does make you feel kind of like oh, this like this guy has obviously chosen this life but he does just want to see his children grow up and give them a life and maybe give them better than what he's had to live with. Yeah, I found his character I found his character very kind of like almost childlike at times because you know, there's this kind of hardline element to him and you hear it in that opening kind of narration there where it's you know, he regretted none of the murders that he committed. There's a moment where they robbed the train which is shot unbelievably. <laughs> like it's one of the great cinematography moments and he's like unnecessarily violent and gleeful in that sequence. There's a moment where he cuts the head off two snakes and they coil around his arm. Uh, like there's just these kind of moments of, of, of violence. And there's one in particular that we, that we'll get to like in, in a little while, I'm sure, which is genuinely quite shocking and hard to kind of go through. But like, there's also these moments of pure depression that come over him, which I just found to be incredibly empathetic. There's a moment where he stands out on the ice and he's shooting this kind of frozen ice beneath him and he talks about depression but even if he didn't it's all there for you to see he's dressed up in his finest clothes he's got his furs around his shoulder he's got Sam Rockwell standing to the side looking quite afraid of him and he's just shooting the ground and he's almost begging to be just no more like like he doesn't enjoy life uh, there's a scene where he gives Casey Affleck's character who of course will eventually kill him he gives him this gun this beautiful looking pristine gun and Casey Affleck regards it with quote such extravagance and he's like a child himself in that moment but Jesse James takes all the, the, the joy of this away immediately not in kind of a selfish mean way but just in musing on himself he, he regards himself and says that he thinks about the man that went so wrong. And I was just so taken by those moments and so taken by the fact that like in this film, you know, like I say, it's Brad Pitt. It's like, you know, the king of cool, Jesse James, like the, the rock star. But it's just about stripping away all the edifice of that into something incredibly broken and splintered. And I just thought it was it was masterfully realized. I don't know if that makes him a good man, though, but it definitely makes him a flawed, interesting, compelling character. Um, yeah, I think w what's interesting about it is I think if you were to, uh, you know, take it into a, a ledger of bad things, I mean, I think Jesse James is clearly a worse human. Like he, you know, in the title card, it says that he felt no remorse for the 17 people he killed. Um, he was a Confederate, you know, that's not great. A Confederate guerrilla who, by all accounts, was, you know, incredibly incredibly violent which which you see in the movie um almost like sadistic in terms of like scalping people um plain view obviously is bad as well um he is rotten like essentially like maybe not to begin with in the movie he's you know as a prospector i think there is um maybe a little bit of heroism um in that opening scene where like he breaks his leg and you know it's it's implied he drags himself all the way back with his with his silver claim like that's that's the drive that he has but the the more he kind of gets consumed by the the chase the more rotten he becomes and disgusting he becomes 
Um, I find it interesting, actually, Norma, that you say that he loves HW because I don't think he ever did. I've always thought that HW is just a prop. Um, I know he says that to him later, but um, m- much like I was saying earlier with that, he is an unabashed capitalist. All he cares about is the black gold in the ground. And, you know, he uses like the, the the tools of socialism because he knows that that's what people want to hear. He knows that having HW beside him gives him a better impression uh, to say that he's a family man first before he's an oil man. Um, to say that he's in business with this, you know, very charming, adorable little kid. Um, so I think in, in the grand scale of it, they're both bad. I think Jesse James is worse. But what's interesting is, is that, um, you know, there will be blood makes Plainview out to be the greatest bastard that ever lived while uh, the assassination of Jesse James very much mythologizes uh, Jesse. And I think that they're both great for that. Like, uh, I don't I don't think the taking one approach with the other, I don't think I would want to see, like, um, show me just how bad Jesse is. Show me, you know, the worst of the worst with Jesse. Like, we get glimpses of it. I think, you know, you, you mentioned some of them. I think maybe the one that you were going to mention is there's a scene where he beats a child and comes close to tearing a kid's ear off with his bare hands were it not for, you know, the gang who by all intents and purposes, are bad people as well. Kind of being a checks and balances on him. Like if he, I think it's Ed on the train before, where he was just going to execute someone for fun. Um, and if, I'm not sure who it is, again, I'm, I'm mixing, mixing up the guys, but stops him from, you know, beating this kid. He's smothering him. The kid's trying to tell him that, you know, he doesn't know where someone is. Like, we get that, but then we also get like, um, yeah, that that deep, deep, sadness and the kind of acceptance of or not acceptance but the rejection of like the myths that he already knows that he has um in a way i kind of have always seen him handing the gun to bob as if like he's passing on the curse he's like you get this now i don't want it anymore he's he's kind of resigned himself to it and the only way to kind of be free is to have bob take it on being a kid we walk into that bank just before noon. Bob will move that cashier away from the shotgun that's under the counter. And I'll creep up behind that cashier. And I'll cock his head back like so. And I'll say, how come an off-scouring of creation like you still sucking air with so many mining coffins? I'll say, how did you get to reach your 20th birthday without leaking out all of your clothes? And if I don't like his attitude, I will slit that filled doodle so deep he will flop on the floor like a fish. My God, what just happened? <laughs> <laughs> Boy, I can hear your gears grinding. Your little motor wondering, my gosh, what's next? What's happening to me? Okay, so I guess before we get to the music, which is coming up, um, real quick, I suppose, if it's possible, seeing as we did build this as a versus, a versus episode of sorts, uh, if you, whether it's a performance that you preferred or a character you preferred, or if you could, if you could just pick one, I'm gonna, I'm gonna do the really annoying American game show host thing of let's go first with uh, Brad Pitt versus Daniel Day Lewis. Who wins? 
Performance and character-wise, I would say Daniel Day-Lewis. And not because I like uh, Brad Pitt does an incredible job, but I just, I think there's more, there's actually more to the character. We see more of it. You get a bit more engrossed. I feel like there was, like you're seeing Brad Pitt portray a character who knows, seem, kind of knows the end is coming and the end is nigh. Um, whereas I guess with Daniel Day-Lewis, with Daniel Plainview, you you get a bit more of that arc of going from one person and changing over time and becoming this other thing. Whereas with Jesse James, it's a little bit more of a snapshot because it actually takes place over a, quite a, like a short enough period of time. Um, that you get it that I didn't get so much of a sense of this character being altered by their actions or events changing or that kind of powerful thing but still both two excellent performances but it's plain view for me I think the the interesting thing and, and maybe another way to reframe this rather versus is, is could Daniel Day-Lewis have been Jesse James and could Brad Pitt have been Daniel Plainview and I don't think either could have which again is, is testament to them. I think that with Day-Lewis and because of the way he approaches things, that he's essentially a blank canvas and that he can create something entirely from the ground up and he has done here and it is iconic and it is remarkable. You've kind of touched upon Brad Pitt. Brad Pitt brings a lot of baggage to this movie and it's kind of really what makes this movie. Like you, you touched upon how he was the biggest star in the world. Like he had a high profile divorce and then he like he's he's not only just like in big movies but he's like a tabloid star um and what's interesting about jesse james is that it's one of the first i believe out of plan b which is his production company and he's basically decided that he wants to be you know the master of his own destiny um he doesn't want to have to be take, kind of taking studio projects and he kind of can now search out for these roles. I found it, I think, very interesting that Andrew Dominic said about him was that he said that um, he was very uncomfortable with the movies that brought him fame, which I think is a very apt thing to think about Jesse, is that, like, as he reflects on his life, I'm sure, even though he might have been okay with the scenarios where he had to kill people, but that he certainly isn't comfortable with his legacy in it. I, I find it too hard to judge. I think, like, I think Brad Pitt's probably the most interesting actor of his generation probably the most important figure in modern hollywood history if you want to add in his productions because like he's the person who got like 12 years a slave moonlight beale street the departed like these are all coming productions from him and his even his run after this i was like i was thinking about like he does jesse james and then he's doing burn after reading glorious bastards you want me to pick one like i still agree with the with the plain view oscar if that's where we're gonna go but like I mean, I think I think you've 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 undersold the fact that I don't absolutely love Jesse James as well. I'm just trying to counterpoint your kind of <laughs> indifference to Daryl B. Blood. I think they're both masterpieces, like the two the best things of of this uh, of this century. I can't pick one. I don't. I don't want to pick one because it'll be okay, a draw. Okay, you, you're going to pick uh, Brad Pitt. <laughs> no, 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 no. I, I, I'm going to pivot, and I'm going to say that in a fight. I think that Daniel Plainview, unfortunately, would kill Jesse James with his bare hands. Absolutely, so that's how I see the situation. Oh, not <laughs> like, I don't think so. In a knockdown, 
really knockdown drag out brawl where there's no like guns involved i think plain view's got the got, got the like look at the size of him but well it's a killer well, well jesse james was a a confederate gorilla he knew how to fight dirty and the only person that we see plain view beat up is paul dano who maybe you or i could take <laughs> okay well that's actually a perfect pivot into the next one which may be a little less contentious uh same again i guess in whatever way you want to you, you want to throw the cards down here casey affleck versus paul dano um yeah casey affleck's performance is like it's one for the ages norm i think you mentioned earlier about like he doesn't see he kind of seems unworldly to me like everything about him is so uncomfortable I, like i love the the opening scene where he, i think it's when he goes up to, to frank james and like he's wearing like an almost comical beaten up top hat like like he, an he art for dodger yeah he's <laughs> he's he's the it's so good he's totally looks like the person who's just like raided his dad's wardrobe and he's like you know you know like a little boy trying on his daddy's clothes and he doesn't seem comfortable in them everyone is uncomfortable around him i like that the fact that they say that he gives them the willies um his voice is so good and broken and childlike and apparently that was kind of what what sold Dominic on him because I think Shia LaBeouf was in there for a while and a lot of people were bringing like really kind of Travis Bickle energy to to the role but they they just liked this kind of childlike wonder that he has I love how beaten down he is just by others when he has his like his comic books under the bed like he's so quaint and pathetic um it's like a remarkable performance I think Dano's good he I think tries to go as big as um, Daniel Day-Lewis, but he can't go as big as Daniel Day-Lewis. But I think he's really good. But, you know, for someone who kind of got airdropped from a small role to a massive role, I think he does really good work, but there's no competition. Well, uh, just coming off the back of that, I'll play you a blast of uh, the kind of ending sequence there, which kind of does sum up the, the Affleck character performance quite well. I was only 20 years old then. I couldn't see how I would look to people. I was surprised by what happened. They didn't applaud. (laughs) He was ashamed of his boasting, his pretensions of courage and ruthlessness. He was sorry about his cold-bloodedness, his dispassion, his inability to express what he now believed was the case. That he truly regretted killing Jesse that he missed the man as much as anybody and wished his murder hadn't been necessary. So yeah, again, it's like that thing of like, he starts off there by saying, oh, you know, I was 20 years old. You know, I didn't, I didn't really understand. And, you know, I thought people would applaud. They didn't. And I was quite surprised by that. And then in the same kind of breath, the narrator effectively says to us that, you know, he deeply regretted what happened, but wished, like, you know, that Jesse's murder hadn't been necessary. So again, like, this is the kind of, the maths that these guys are doing in their head, that they believe that their actions are right, even though they are completely poisoned and tainted by it. Uh, for me, yeah, the Casey Affleck performance, I think, is genuinely transcendent and absolutely brilliant. But I do want to give Paul Dano a lot of credit for, especially, like, four days of prep or four days on the set, especially opposite Daniel Day-Lewis, which I have to imagine whether this story about the previous actor is apocryphal or not. I mean, how could you not be slightly intimidated? So I'm going to call that one a draw, maybe, in, in the interest of fairness, I think, you know? Nah, some kind of draw it. here. Casey for, Affleck for the is, like... 
so <laughs> incredible. He literally like even the second he's he's he appears on screen, he immediately exudes just this greasy, disgusting, horrible, sad, pathetic, weird little like schoolboy kind of vibe. He looks a little bit paler. Like again, it's like that thing where like Brad Pitt just always looks like the quarterback of the football team kind of vibe. Um, and there's just like, I don't know like how they did this, but again, like the clothes he wears when he first arrives, he's wearing this like, yeah, like the mad sort of like dad's clothes thing. But there's times as well where like his shirt sleeves seem quite short and he almost seems like he's just like a, who should be a more grown up, bigger man in this kind of smaller childlike state. And um, yeah, he's just, he's absolutely incredible. And watching him go from the beginning straight to, to like his end conversations with um, Zoe Deschanel's character, his name I can't remember. I'm, I'm not even sure she's given the character her name. character in the film. Uh, woman woman uh, 2. Her, her character is named. She does, she does get a name, but, but it's so blinking you'll miss it. Cause she, I, I do wonder if she was a victim of like the longer cut, because there was a one stage, supposedly a four-hour cut of this movie, and she does kind of pop yeah, up again. Yeah, because her character is interesting, and it's kind of like, it's a nice turn for his character as well. I just think like, I think part of the reason as well why Brad Pitt potentially got like his portrayal of Jesse James potentially got like slightly overlooked by other people or not overlooked, but sort of wasn't seen as so singular in comparison to Plainview is because Casey Affleck was just so, so good that it was just like it like there was like an actual competition between the two, whereas like between Paul Dano and Daniel Day-Lewis, like Paul Dano does a really, really great job, but he he definitely didn't stand a chance with what he was playing with. All right, Paul Dano beaten up again. And finally, before we get into the music real quick, cinematography, two stunning looking films. Uh, Roger Deakins, of course, was not rewarded with his little girl statue just yet for this one, which I think was a crime. All due respect to Robert Ellswit, but it's Roger Deakins all the way, kids. No? Just me? Can I just say, at the Oscars that year, for Best Cinematography, there was five cinematographers nominated. Two of those are Roger Deakins. <laughs> so, No Country for Old Men and The Assassination of Jesse James. And he didn't win. And I was just like, the odds were there. Like, he's like two of the films. I adore Roger Deakins and all the work he does. And there's truly some, like, in The Assassination of Jesse James, there's moments and techniques used in that film that are absolutely astounding and incredible. In that train robbery scene, the the setup for it when the train is coming and the train arrives at the point where they're all hiding and the camera is picked up by the front of the train and like moved along, like that's the shot and it is incredible, like um, so, so, so beautiful and amazingly shot. And again, with There Will Be Blood, it's so hard because they're just... They both, the cinematography in both films captures the like, the atmosphere, the action, everything that they need to do. If I was going to say which one I prefer, which one I prefer, which one I think should have like... This won. was. I, I love that you're the one who chose to do this, and you're tied up. I in know it's so hard. 
I didn't think it would be this hard. Um, <laughs> You're picking like two of the most like, because even yeah, like, it's funny that you mentioned No Country for Old Men because it's like 2007, like not a bad year, <laughs> like pretty. Fucking I know, good. and you know what's mad is in where they shot, there will be blood. They were shooting No Country for Old Men like over the road. <laughs> it's just like it's insanity. I would say, I would actually say, I prefer Roger Deakins. Assassination of Jesse James cinematography. There, I said it. It's been committed to podcasts. I'm do a quick stretch here History. before I perform a drive-by on a lovely English man who is one of the great cinematographers of our time. Um, I mean, look, The Assassination of Jesse James is undoubtedly the prettier film. It might be the prettiest film ever committed to celluloid. Um I kind of, and if you asked me maybe like before, I probably would have been like, oh yeah, no, Jesse, you know, Jesse James is just like, nothing comes close to it. But like on this rewatch of Blood, I was just like, no, Blood is so much better. <laughs> um, you know, we want, we want the best cinematography, not necessarily the most cinematography. And the thing that I've started to notice with Roger Deakins is starting to creep into his work a little bit is that he is absolutely incredible a composition but sometimes there needs to be more with that and I, and I find that um and I don't I don't think this is fully true but like you know with 1917 he's kind of become like a a, a shorthand for like bravado cinematography where like you know he does it in one shot or you look at like you know Blade Runner 2046 where it's like oh look at that burnt orange in a desert I think formally Ellsworth has the the chops to make like a very beautiful film, which this is. Um, his oil derrick explosion scene, I think, is a is as good, if probably not better, a feat than the the train robbery. I mean, like again, I absolutely love the train robbery, and I, I'm I'm kind of playing devil's advocate a little bit here. Um, I just think some of the shots that that are in are in blood are like particularly like one of the things that I've always thought about Plainview is like he's not really human like the way he goes around is almost more like an animal like at the end of it he's like essentially like one of the apes from 2001 swinging a a bowling pin around um he's predatory like the scene of him looking at Henry from the water and he's just like a shark or after the oil Derek fire goes up and this is one of the most remarkable shots it's just like it's Plainview and all you're getting is like, he's covered in oil. It's completely pitch black. He looks like something out of under the skin or the thing behind, you know, the cafe and Mulholland Drive. Like he doesn't look human. And that whole shot is just literally him lit by a blazing inferno, like in front of him. Um, I think in terms of like, just being drawn into the movie, Elizabeth kind of with Paul Thomas Anderson, they take these like really long shots that don't draw attention to the fact that they're long because it's not just like one, one, uh, one framing. Like there's multiple framings where it's shifting between characters as like they, they get one up on each other. Um, I would also like to point out that Robert Ellsworth this year also shot Michael Clayton, which is a bloody looking good film. So look, we're kind of splitting hairs. The two of them are two of the best in the field, but I'm, I'm, I'm taking <laughs> Robert Ellsworth. I like, okay, weird little fun fact to drop in. So there was like previously mentioned, there was loads of different um, versions of Jesse James that were cut. So there was the original uh, Andrew Dominic cut and then the uh, production company weren't happy with it and the studio was like, no, we need more action. So all these cuts were done. Eventually, the editor, whose name actually escapes me right now, 
left the production and went and edited There Will Be Blood. <laughs> it's just nuts. Like, it's just, it's insane that even like, when you think about it, that these films all kind of happened within a year, two years of each other. Um, and that sem- seemingly like five different camera m- people were working. <laughs> and that was all. We didn't know how good we had it. Uh, you had to fucking mention Mulholland Drive and the creature behind the diner. You really had to bring that back into my brain. Thank you very much. Uh, let's dive into some of the music in this movie. Uh, an hour and 20 minutes into this podcast. Why not? Uh, step forward, Mr. Johnny Greenwood. Johnny Greenwood of Radiohead fame. This was um, this was not his first piece of score work. So this also will also become evident at one point where um, he did this score work for a film called Body Song, which Paul Thomas Anderson saw, really, really liked the work and was like, this is really, really interesting. Um, so got Johnny Greenwood on board. Apparently he actually at one point was going to pull out because he didn't think he was going to be able to pull it off. And uh, PTA managed to convince him into it. So they drew um, pieces of music from other compositions in order to make the score for this film. Apparently, actually, Johnny Greenwood wrote hours worth of music. And then Paul Thomas Anderson was like, I actually want this thing, this thing and this thing. So it's a bit of a patchwork of a score that comes together. So that's also what made it non-eligible for the Oscar at the time. Because when I remember looking into this and being like, how is that score not nominated? And then realising how much of it is kind of like, there's little bits of it that are stripped off from other things. There is a composer called Christoph Penderecki. I think I'm pronouncing that right? Christoph Penderecki. Um, who Johnny Greenwood absolutely adores. And if you look up any of this composer stuff, it has There Will Be Blood written all over it. There's like, they have an album together and so much of the the music is influenced by that. And in the, um, there's also bits in the score that have taken, that are taken from like Brahms and other compositions as well. Um, one of the main songs that's a, a really, really, I say songs on the like, the score album, they're broken down into songs, but I do feel like the music in this film is one enormous sort of cog that is working within the machinery of the film itself or the oil rig that is There Will Be Blood. And it's definitely like a lifeline kind of running through it. It all kind of like flows into each other. So the idea of kind of breaking it up into songs is a little bit tricky. Um, but there's... a uh, one of the particular songs, which is called Proven Lands, or a piece of music called Proven Lands, um, that takes a piece from a song called Popcorn Superhead Receiver. I think it's part two is when that actual music comes in. If you listen to that song, it is extremely evident straight away that that's where it comes from. But it's an incredible piece of music. And um, it literally feels like machinery at work, like I really, really love the score for the film. I feel like The Assassination of Jesse James, the score work for that film is a little bit more digestible and a bit 
more easy listening <laughs> um, vibes and it's like prettier and like nicer to just sit down and listen to an album too. But I did find that sitting down with the score for There Will Be Blood for a week, there was so much more I found in it that I absolutely loved and actually doing like a little bit of like digging up on it was um, great as well, just seeing all those different layers. And I think it kind of culminates as well into, it creates an atmosphere within the film. But I think, and this is kind of true with a lot of Paul Thomas Anderson films, it definitely um, pushes the score to the forefront and makes it have an identity. Like it's, there's parts where the score is up quite loud. Like it, like he wants you to hear that music and there's like, there's nothing to hide from in a lot of the scenes. It's, the music isn't, underneath a lot of dialogue it comes in in like these big massive moments it's kind of like laid bare so luckily Johnny Greenwood is so good that it's absolutely gorgeous amazing incredible um, score work and I think lays a really good groundwork for his best score work that was to come I don't think this is the best stuff out of him because he's done like Phantom Thread and you were never really here about stunning, stunning score work as well. Um, yeah, um, big surprise. Both of these scores are absolutely amazing. Um, both in their in their different ways. They both, um, you know, the, the tone of each movie is vastly, vastly different, even though they kind of, they share some DNA in, in, in kind of what they're looking at and um, kind of the examination they're doing of, of bad, bad men. But... Um, just on Johnny Greenwood's score, um, it's really, really, really remarkable that this is like his first, you know, I know he done, he done Bonnie song, but like in terms of like first feature, um, really, you know, not coming in on like a, a small indie, like he, he has since done kind of smaller indie movies, but like coming in on a pretty big, big project and you can, you can kind of understand his anxieties about like, you know, I might be in Radiohead, but I don't know if I'm good enough to be able to score this movie. Um, he certainly is. Um, I love that there's like so many shifts in tone in what he's doing. Like he, there's a, like a lot of heavy lifting. What you said, Norman, is like totally right. Um, his score is the propulsion of this film and it both has to deal with, you know, small moments. Um, there's some like genuinely like very, very kind of beautiful, sorrowful uh, parts of the score that would be perfect in Jesse James, like um, the oil um, piece of music or uh, Prospectors Arrive. But then also we, we heard a piece of Future Markets there, which kind of kicks off like some sort of like Jaws theme on speed and just like really gets the movement going. And like it's... The, the instruments that he's using like it and it's something that he's kind of continued on a little bit in the master like like this like click clock uh coming through it like it racks up anxiety but like it's it's such an industrious sound um yeah i think it's absolutely remarkable work um you know if we were to flip to 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 jesse james yeah again it an incredible piece of music um perfect at myth building um I love the contrast that they that, that exists in the movie of like the bookends. You get song for Jesse opens it, song for Bob closes it. One is very wistful, and you know you're immediately. I mean, you're you're captivated by Deacon cinematography. You're captivated by 
Brad Pitt, you're captivated by um, not Ricky Jay's voiceover, but like <laughs> that, you know, that that opening song for Jesse, just like immediately you're like, you're falling in love with the movie, you know, straight away. And then it's breaking your heart at the end uh, with Song for Bob. Oh yeah. I mean, like you want to talk about Song for Bob. So like, I th- like Nick Havemore and Ellis, I mean, I guess in terms of the the making of this like a lot of the music may may have been pre-existing which it, it kind of is a, a thing that can happen with him i mean obviously like everyone in the world has talked about skeleton tree and what an amazing album that is and how it's an album about grief and it's an album about loss and it's about the death of his son arthur but of course a lot of the music was written before that happened and you know the album comes out around that time and thus you know in a way myth making in and of its own kind of essence which of course would follow someone like cave around anyway it becomes the thing of like well he wrote these about arthur and it's he didn't quite but of course they do apply and it's i think there's similar kind of construction at work here but ultimately i'm just so hooked on song for bob and i have been for so long uh because for me you know even if you just give that piece of music to this character i think it's such an empathetic statement from Nick gave him more and else to do that, to take this, this coward, you know, as depicted in the film from title down to performance to narrative. I think it makes such a massive statement about humanity and life and just mistakes and regrets and, and, and consequences and, and just paths chosen wrongly and all that kind of stuff. And I think it's just, a, it's a real noble thing I think for them to do because the music itself is just absolutely astonishing. And uh, let's just take a quick listen to it. me every fucking time like it's everything in it the notes the individual notes just the way it builds and kind of expands it's, it's like this kind of weird bellows and it, I, I genuinely like especially when coupled with the the visual and the narrative of this film I can't go through the ending without not shedding a tear I think it's just incredible I mean in terms of comparing the two scores off each other like uh, the physicality of the music in Jesse James for me like it's it's ethereal it's hazy it's dreamlike it's otherworldly uh, in Johnny Greenwood and There Will Be Blood I mean it feels like a horror film to me it's tension it's dread it's piercing strings there's a sense of disarray and disorientation it's often quite sharp but there are also these moments of kind of tenderness which may well reflect what Norman was saying earlier on about the character of Daniel Plainview perhaps having a hidden tenderness to him um, I found it easier to sit down in a standalone situation and kind of walk around literally walk around outside and the five kilometer radius approved by the government of uh <laughs> in the kind of in the sun and some kind of you know with the sky threatening to break as well with uh cave and ellis is more than i was with the johnny greenwood one and i don't think that's necessarily a slight on that one or my kind of you know bias towards the former but i think it's more a case of like the johnny greenwood score is very arresting to the point where 
it's almost like you have to keep up with it. There's a weird kind of thing with it where like it's almost like it's challenging you every step of the way. Not that the Cave and Ellis one doesn't do that at all, but there's a sense of just kind of like, you know, I guess running in place with it or something. Like it's it feels like it's like it's it's gonna get me if I'm not paying attention to it or something. Yeah, like I found um with the assassination of Jesse James one, it like it is much easier to picture it as to listen to it as an album. And I feel like it was quite easy to listen to that music and attach Nick Cave and Warren Ellis to it and to be able to go, yeah, I can see how this would be a natural progression. This is the music that would they would create for this kind of film. It's like so well measured and like it's in contrast to there will be blood. It's very emotive music. Like the score for There Will Be Blood, it is so tense and so taut. And then it has other moments where it kind of softens. But it's it's more of like a mechanical moving part. Whereas Jesse James is just like Nick Cave and Warren Ellis do such a good job of just having it lay under scenes and lay under moments and just allow you to take in the emotion and it does have like ballad-esque feeling to it as well at certain points. So I think both scores serve their films like exceptionally well, like absolutely incredible. Um, it would be harder to listen to There Will Be Blood and try to identify Johnny Greenwood in it unless you knew about those kind of specific um, pieces that he done, that he had uh, did before and sort of being able to work out the anatomy of how he built the score. Um, I tried to find a kind of like Radiohead sort of comparison connection for it. Trying to see if there was like elements of Radiohead that had somehow like seeped in other than having kind of like heightened orchestration and like polyrhythms. So a lot of like rhythms running simultaneously that seem disjointed and then come together perfectly at certain points and disjoint again. They were the only kind of comparisons I could make between that work that you could like draw in the Radiohead influence. Whereas with the assassination of Jesse James, I think it's very much, yeah, that's Nick Cave and Warren Ellis. It's like the instrumentation they would use um, and you can connect it back to other albums really easily, which like doesn't affect either score, but it's just kind of interesting to see how far removed Johnny Greenwood is in his own score work to um, like to Radiohead stuff. Yeah. Um, interesting what you're saying. I think like they, that, that with this being kind of Greenwood's first time really doing this, um, he's certainly not, fully formed you you can tell that you know there is the genius there that you know if you listen to Radiohead all these years you would know about and um you know what he would go on to do but he he kind of in comparison to like you know um Nick Cave and Warren Ellis who even though this is only their I think their second or third score I know they've done the, prop- the proposition before I mean they clearly work together a lot of the time and you can hear a lot more of their work in in the in the Jesse James score of like traditional sometimes like bad seed score it's like Nick Cave piano and then Warren Ellis kind of doing everything else and like that's that's their rhythm that's been their rhythm for maybe 20 years while Greenwood is doing something completely different and to to an extent like I know you brought up uh, Penderecki 
and he's kind of trying to do a bit of that like um, for people that don't know Penderecki and have seen um, episode 8 of Twin Peaks The Return uh, Trinity for the Victims of Hiroshima that piece that starts that like really like you know shrill kind of like cello strings that kind of vibe like that sound is kind of like what um what Greenwood is going for and then he's also and I don't know if this was a case of like that Anderson had some like placement music before he came in but like he he sounds like the the Arvo part composition that's in this um at around the midpoint kind of really sounds like what Greenwood's doing so I, I kind of wonder is Greenwood you know trying to bend that way and then go one way to Penderecki without fully finding his his sound yet even though what he comes out with I still think is remarkable is it just me or is like is hiring Johnny Greenwood for this project a massive gamble? But like, I mean, by not to diminish his work, but I mean, like, considering like you got Nick Haven, Warren Ellis over here, and it's like fairly untrained in this realm, wonderful musician that he is, especially for like a production like this, a filmmaker like this, it, I, I find the the marriage kind of shocking, in, like in, in a weird way. Like, I mean, like obviously it works, but what if it didn't? Yeah, I, I get that, but like you're also talking about a filmmaker who based a three-hour movie around the songs of Amy Mann. Um, you know, he he had a lot of his early scores were done by John Bryan. Like he he's never he's never kind of had a it's it's the one thing like he he has his his kind of his crew is whether it be like working with Ellswood all the time, um, working with Dylan uh, Tickener, his his editor too. His kind of apart from like breaking away from his his kind of acting, you know, crew of John C. Riley and Phil Seymour Hoffman, like he's kind of always been a bit over the place with music. Like a lot of the music in Boogie Nights would have been, you know, just like straight from the from the from the vinyl rack. Um, so yeah, like it it is a big shot, but like, a big chance, but like to take. But you also, if it went really really terribly, you don't have to accept it. So it's worth it. Just throw it out, get rid, not having it, mate. <laughs> like, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, I, I find myself inherently drawn to one and I did have to make more time for the other. And yeah, I think it, that, that does kind of sim, like some of my reflection of both movies as a whole as well. Um, in terms of awards, right? Like, this, I'm, I'm trying to, this is, is this the year that Glenn Hansard won for Best Song? Is that a thing? W- w- was it? Yes, yes. I mean, same year. <laughs> same <laughs> like, year. What? Yeah, same year. So they were like, Johnny Greenwood can't be nominated for Best Original Score because like there's certain pieces of music. They focused in on a piece of music that he had previously written, which is that um, Popcorn Superhead receiver. And it's kind of like, oh, it's, like if you're going to let Glenn Hansard get away with falling slowly. I don't know. I don't. Where do they draw the line on that? That man's gotten away with quite a fucking lot, let me tell you. But uh, including one of the worst songs ever. <laughs> like I fucking. But it's hate just that weird song. because the Academy's line on it was that he had already written this piece of music, and then they went, "Oh, and he also used like a piece of Brahms and the Arvo part." Part. Part. Thank you very much. So I can see that there's like a couple of different reasons why he wouldn't get it. But it was just like Glenn Hansard wrote that song completely separate of that film. It's ridiculous. So hang on. if um, Justice for Enchanted. (laughs) Forever. You said earlier on you couldn't imagine uh, Day-Lewis effectively playing the Jesse James role and you couldn't imagine uh, vice versa. 
Could you transpose either of these scores to the other film, or would it be a complete fucking mess? What do you think? No, um, I, well, I think I, I said earlier that there are some parts of the of Greenwood's "There Will Be Blood" um, score that that would work, but like, although I would, you know, and I'm, people who are talented out there, if you could put future markets on the on the train robbery. Uh, maybe because I think in in Blood it's when the train is coming into Little Boston that like it it really hits its peak. I'd be curious to see it. I don't think it would work. Um, you know, again, like these are two brilliant movies. <laughs> you know, independently, I don't think we could go in and start chopping and changing things about them and and hope that we could get an extra percent of uh, Rotten Tomatoes <laughs> rating out of it. That's what it's it, all about. Yeah, it's like <laughs> <laughs> those numbers. Yeah, am I am I on uh, hiding um, to nothing here, or is there anything else in that? Yeah, no, you can't. Just <laughs> it just doesn't like they're two just such massively different like instrumentation style. They're also trying to they're trying to achieve different things. Like ultimately, the assassination of Jesse James. I just like the score is so contemplative and like. It, it's just, it's like so much more emotive where there other parts of There Will Be Blood where it just like, it serves, they both serve the function of their films exceptionally well. And I would say very few others. Like I can't imagine a lot of other films being able to get away with the world, There Will Be Blood score or any like things like that because it is, it's so tense and taut and it's, it's really like, heightened um so yeah i don't think they can compare in in any way was it a fair night when all of hollywood's elite were honored david higgins at the 80th annual academy awards were you happy with what went down or do you think that these these two maybe should have swept the board um yeah so i i was looking at the best picture and we kind of we, we mentioned like 2007 uh, an absolutely cracker year. Cracking year like you know it's kind of hard to have a gripe with No Country for Men. It's a it's a bloody good film. Um, but yeah, like no no room for Zodiac in two thousand seven. Jesse James for the most part shut out. Um, I would give it to Blood. I that would just be my preference. But if if Jesse James got it, I wouldn't be mad. I'm not really mad that No Country for All Men got it, even though I it wouldn't be like top three Cohen's for me. I think they've they. Have since done better, but again, it's it's fantastic. So I would go blood to win my best actors. Um, just to, the best actors that year were um, Clooney, Daniel Day Lewis, um, Johnny Depp for Sweeney Todd. That one's aged very well. Tommy Lee. That's a disgrace. Tommy Lee. J- Absolutely. What the hell? Why? Tommy Lee Jones for In the Valley of Ela. He didn't get. Not, so, he did, a film that no one has seen. It's a terrible film. <laughs> the, that that movie literally ends, and I'm sorry if I'm spoiling this movie for you. Like it, it, it's it's one of the big like it's Paul Haggis who did Crash. It's a very big message movie, and at one stage in the movie, someone's like, "When when a country is not right, we hang the flag upside <laughs> down." That movie ends with somebody hanging the American flag upside down as a statement. It's absolute garbage. And Tom- Spike Lee did that in fucking Black Landsman. Remember that? Yeah. So, um, you hang a flag upside down. It comes down on the screen and it turns black and white, and it's like it just comes down, and it's just like, oh god, no, fuck off. So, uh, Tommy Lee didn't get nominated for No Country, which he should have, and Vigo got nominated for Eastern Promises, which is a good performance. Oh, yeah. I would go Very my good. five that year to be 
Gyllenhaal for Zodiac, Clooney, Daniel Day-Lewis, Brad Pitt, and Casey Affleck. Casey Affleck was nominated for Best Supporting. Oh, best supporting. It's a, it's a, it's a lead role. His name is in the title. It's like, it's a two-hander. <laughs> it's it's the kind of thing that they always do. They'll never, um, if there are two male leads or two female leads, they'll always put one in supporting just to try and split the difference. This is like kind of what I was saying earlier is that like in a way, Brad Pitt kind of screwed himself over if he was hoping to like push for the best actor thing because it's just like, like there's so much of Casey Affleck in that film and to try and flip it down to oh we'll just put him in the supporting role and it's like he was definitely like Casey Affleck wouldn't have won it against Daniel Day-Lewis so it makes sense for him from a winning point of view but also they were obviously trying to push Brad Pitt to being that best actor nominated kind of actor um, and doing that kind of thing um, and they did the reverse of that this time, this year, with Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, when that's clearly a lead role yeah. as well, but he's in the sporting art category and he swept it. And you also have like The Departed, I think like DiCaprio was up for supporting and it was like clearly a lead. Yeah. There's a lot of, there's a lot of w- very weird kind of like politics around that of like, again, th- like 2007 was just an incredible year. Do you know what film, when I was looking up the Oscars from that year, which is really, really good and just didn't get a look in really at all. It got nominated for Best Original Screenplay was Lars and the Real Girl. Cute film. It's on my letterboxed <laughs> watch list to rewatch. And yeah. it also features Paul Schneider of The Assassination of Jesse James by the Carrot Robert Ford. What else is on your is on your uh, Oscars list, Dave? Of course, Best Score. We have to have Ratatouille in there. Can't have fucking The Assassination of Jesse James in there, but we get Ratatouille. Ratatouille's a classic. Well, watch your mouth when you talk about Ratatouille, David. Uh, Ratatouille is a really good score. <laughs> Attitude for best film. Go <laughs> I'd, I'd probably take more umbrage with, you know, the 310 to Yuma uh, by Marco Beltrami getting a nod instead of Nick Cave and Warren else. So if we want to even just go Westerns, I don't know why you need to, you know, run over poor little chef. <laughs> <laughs> I still haven't seen Ratatouille. just Rata wanted Tui. to feed the people. Still haven't seen oh, it. Oh man, put it on the list. I'll get it on the list. Okay, <laughs> I'm sorry. Um, okay. Is there anything else before we uh, close off this absolutely epic podcast, which was a lot of fun and very heavy, uh, fitting the films that we watched? Uh, anything else? Any uh, any other business? Any other Western business? Any other cowboy business? What, what have you got? Did you do your Who Would Win whichever Oscar won? Uh, I, Jesse James for all of the Oscars for me, please. For all of all, oh, of all of them. Yeah, yeah, okay, yeah. Okay. Best, <laughs> best everything. Best sound editing. Can I can I ask you then? Dave, I, I'm, I'm going to say that you have to pick between I, I am the Academy. I have nominated Casey Affleck and Brad Pitt for Best Actor. Who are you picking? Brad Pitt. Oh. It's Brad Pitt. Brad Pitt? <laughs> Casey Affleck is incredible. Yeah, I'm not denying that, but it's Brad Pitt. He walks away with it. He gets you his Oscar. You just fancy him. Uh, who doesn't? <laughs> like... But that's not why he's winning. He's winning for his talent. Don't diminish the man, Norma. It's disgraceful. Right. Disgraceful. Well, he lost scenes. a bit of a finger for the role. Right? Yeah, which you don't even notice as the film goes on. You're like, oh yeah, that is a thing. All right, okay. Uh, that was that was exhausting, but good. I think, uh, which is how I felt after there will be blood. But um, all right, <laughs> one last dig. 
<laughs> so uh, up next on No Popcorn, now that we've done a double bill, we figure we might as well do another one. One that is less epic, but no less interesting. So next time on No Popcorn, it'll be this. Now remember, we are live, so no swearing or they will cut you off. What about Big Dog's cock? Can you say that? got it in, it's good. When Hi, I'm Tony Wilson, and this is the trailer for 24-Hour Party People. It's the incredible but true story of the man behind the scene that defined a decade. Who is this man? This is not about this sex, drugs and rock and roll. Honest. Although they are in it. It's not how it looks, love. It's not about me. I only got a blowjob, that's full penetration. <laughs> It's about music. So this is the moment when even the white man starts dancing. So, yeah, it's um, on the day of recording, uh, I saw an article today. Myself and David Higgins saw an article today, and it was uh, 40 years after the death of Ian Curtis. Is he the greatest frontman of all time? One of those kind of pub debates that comes up, but it is that kind of anniversary time, I suppose. So that's why we'll be paying attention to Control and 24-hour party people on the show next time. Here's a confession. I've seen neither of these films. I've only seen one, so this is this is going to be interesting. Yeah, it's not quite a versus either this time. It's more a case of like, let's just watch these movies and kind of have a chilled out discussion on them, as opposed to this one, which again, what lovely. I do feel like I've I feel like I've gone back to to ancient times. Yeah, there I've seen I've seen both of them. Uh, I definitely liked both of them the first time I see them. I think I've seen Twenty Four Hour Party People more than once, but interesting uh, looks at Ian Curtis. Like one is very much just him and he's kind of on the periphery in 24 hour party people uh two different approaches from two i'm not going to say great but two interesting filmmakers and anton corbin and michael winterbottom uh i'm certainly glad we're not we're not doing michael winterbottom's nine songs hopefully that will never be a a no popcorn episode (laughs) but uh you give me ideas now potentially one of the worst just one of the worst films could it be could it be? I worked in a in, in a cinema in in UGC before it became Cine World when I was in college when when it came out, and because they have like the the unlimited card there, people will just go see anything. It's just like what's showing, I'll go see it, and they're like, "What's this nine songs and the walkouts? You've never seen walkouts like this movie. It was just incredible. <laughs> like you'd go into it and there'd be like, you know, it's not like it was getting hundreds of people going to see it, but like you get like 40 or 50 and you'd be lucky if there was, you know, um, double figures by the end of it. <laughs> a truly <laughs> horrid film, but 24 hour party people, thankfully is a lot better. It's fun. It's got a good Coogan performance. Um, big fan of Paddy Considine in it as a uh, Joy Division's manager. Looking forward to it. I'm looking forward to seeing uh, Sean Harris as uh, Ian Curtis, which I did not realise was a thing. So that's going to be very interesting. All right. Until next time. Thank you, Dave Higgins. Thank you, Norma Howard. My name is Dave Hanrowdy. This has been No Popcorn. There will be no popcorn and there will be no encore. Patreon.com slash no encore if you want to support the show. Back again very, very soon. Thank you very much. Bye, 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 bye.
Celebrate this July 4th with a special presentation of A Capital Fourth. Join your host, Vanessa Williams, with performances from Sea to Shining Sea, starring Jimmy Buffett, Gladys Knight, Alan Jackson, Cynthia Erivo, Pentatonix, Renee Fleming, Train, Jennifer Nettles, Mickey Guyton, Jimmy Allen, Ali'i Cravalho, Laura Osnes, Ali Stroker, and the greatest live fireworks display in the USA. It's A Capital Fourth, sponsored by the Boeing Company and American Airlines, Sunday, July 4th, 8, 7 Central, only on PBS. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health Right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.